Tonight, James chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In earlier English translations, speak evil against was rendered with a more acerbic backbite. You'll notice that you adulterous people from earlier in this same chapter has now again given way to James' more characteristic address, brothers. That's important in this particular case because we all know how we speak about others has everything to do with how we think about them, how we view them. If we regard them as our brothers, really our brothers, we're much less likely to run them down in our speech. So notice the threefold repetition of brothers in verse 11. There is an and between speaks against and judges, but the idea is not that those are two different sins. Rather, to slander another, a slander a brother, is in the nature of the case to pass judgment on him or her. What is more... That is a clear violation of the law of God. So to speak evil against another amounts to speaking evil against the law. The law, you remember, forbids tail-bearing. Leviticus 19.16, do not go about spreading slander among your people. And it requires us to love our neighbors as ourselves, which is to say we need to treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. A command that James has already described in chapter 2, verse 8, as the royal law according to the scripture. If we don't keep the law, whatever we may claim as Christians, we are not giving it the reverence it deserves, and we're certainly appearing to dismiss its authority. Now, this hardly means that Christians are not to exercise discernment about people or render judgment in certain ways about them. They're not to slander people. But as you know, there is a great deal in the Bible about speaking the truth in love, even when the truth is that someone is behaving in a very improper way. The Lord Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, famously said, Judge not lest ye be judged. But he went right on to counsel his disciples not to cast their pearls before swine, which certainly requires a judgment of some kind to be made about another person. Johann Albrecht Bengel's famous foreword commentary on Matthew 7.1, the Lord's command, judge not lest ye be judged, has always seemed to me perfectly to capture the Lord's meaning. He said what the Lord meant was that we should never judge another person sinescientia necessitate amore. That is, we shouldn't pass judgment without knowledge, without necessity, and without love. Don't judge unless you have all the facts. And very often, 
if not usually, we don't. Unless it is necessary to do, it usually isn't. And unless you're doing so in real love, which is rarely the case. In other words, cut out the judging when you don't have firsthand and reliable and comprehensive information. When you are no, under no obligation to pass judgment, if nothing worthwhile will be lost if you keep your mouth shut. And when you can't do it in a spirit of real affection and a concern for the welfare of the other person, I fear that would eliminate virtually all my judgmental thoughts and words. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, when you pass judgment on others, you assume a place and a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Here, brother has become neighbor. It could be that James means that the prohibition against slander must be observed no matter whether we are talking about a Christian or an unbeliever, which is certainly true. But I suspect here that James is still talking about relationships between Christians. And my brother, as a Christian, my brother is, of course, my neighbor par excellence. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We've obviously moved on to another subject, though it can certainly be related to the issue of true humility before God and man, which has been one of the subjects James has been dealing with in the previous verses. In this case, James personifies some businessmen, merchants, traders, who imagine that their hopes and their plans for commerce are of interest to nobody but themselves, and who forget how much in life lies entirely beyond their control. This sort of section and this particular section in James trades on the same teaching we find in the Lord's own teaching. In particular, the parable of the rich fool who, you remember, made plans to build bigger barns to hold his still ever-growing harvests without reckoning with the fact that the Lord could and, in fact, in his case, would cut his life short. Far from being in charge of our lives, our entire lives are a vapor that can vanish in a puff of wind. Remember, we've said that James, of all the writers of the New Testament, seems to have the Lord's teaching in permanent solution in his mind. And that's why it continues to appear and reappear in his writing. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Boasting about your plans and your achievements that are going to come is proof that you really don't understand your situation. As Paul would put it in another way in 1 Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? You foolish pipsqueak. 
Who are you to take credit for what God has given you? And who are you to forget how dependent you are upon his provision? As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, why that statement right there, that last verse? Commentators have debated that question long and hard. But the simplest explanation is to say that James has told us what we ought to do in verse 15. And since now we know what we ought to do, if we don't do it, we are all the more responsible for having sinned against God. It's interesting that here the sins are sins of omission. We tend, and I think men in particular, tend to think first and primarily when thinking of their sins, of their commissions, the doing of things that are forbidden. But the Bible lays tremendous emphasis on sins of omission. And in fact, the failure to keep any one of the Ten Commandments is in the summary form of those commandments given to us by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 22, first and foremost, a sin of omission, not commission. When we break any one of those Ten Commandments, we have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we have not loved our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. In the Lord's parables as well, as you remember, the accent falls on sins of omission. Think, for example, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite are not condemned because of what they did. They are condemned because of what they failed to do. The rich man in the Lord's parable didn't care for Lazarus when he could have and should have another sin of omission. And so, in the Lord's account of the Last Judgment, in Matthew chapter 25, people are judged and rejected, not because of the wrong things they did, but because of the good things they failed to do and to do for others. We tend to imagine, I think most of the time, that the Last Judgment will expose our wicked deeds, and no doubt it will. But Jesus lays stress on the exposure of our lack our want of good deeds. Remember his words there, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. I fear that it will be the sins of omission for which we will be held most responsible on the great day. Now this evening I plan to spend my time on the last five verses. We have read this evening, not the first Two, the primary reason for that is that we've already devoted attention to our speech about others when considering James's longer treatment of that subject in the first paragraph of chapter 3. In Proverbs, you may remember, various Proverbs concerning our speech, like Proverbs about other subjects, are scattered throughout the book. And when a preacher preaches on the book of Proverbs, he almost invariably gathers those various Proverbs having to do with our speech, and preaches a sermon on the aggregate. I've never heard of a preacher who preached through Proverbs verse by verse. He would have to be a very clever preacher 
to keep that interesting when he came to the 17th time that uh, we had something in the proverb about our speech. It's always subject by subject. Well, in a similar way, we've already had a sermon on unkind, cruel, and judgmental speech. Perhaps I should have read these verses and, can, and included them in the sermon a few weeks ago when we dealt with that paragraph in chapter 3. It's not often, even in the Bible, in the inspired Word of God, it is not often that a biblical writer so perfectly and simply encapsulates an important theme of biblical teaching that his words become part and parcel of Christian conversation ever thereafter. But James has done that here. How many times in your life have you heard a Christian brother or sister say, Lord willing, I will do this or that? I say those words a lot myself. I know many of you do as well. And so have Christians for the last 2,000 years. Lord willing, I plan on this. I will do that. I will go there. Indeed, the terminology is so fixed in Christian speech that it actually has a technical name. It's called the Condicio Jacobia, the condition of James, or the Jamesian condition. Remember, Jacob is the Greek spelling of the name James. So the Condicio Jacobia is the Jamesian condition. In other words, this is the condition that James imposes on a Christian speech. When speaking about the future, a believer should say, Lord willing, or if the Lord wills. And because that condition applies to so many things that we say, it was then shortened to the Latin letters D. V, which stand for Deo Volente, an ablative absolute that means if God is willing or should God be willing or God being willing. There have been those, as you might expect if you know human nature at all, who have thus turned James's instruction here into a law. That is, a Christian is not allowed to speak of the future or of plans he or she may be making or to express an intention without always saying, Lord willing, or if the Lord is willing. I've had people correct my speech uh, by saying that I should have said, Lord willing, or Deo Valente. But of course, that's not really James' point. He's not talking about the words we use or should always use, but about the way we think about our future, about our plans, about our intentions. The proof of that is that we have a great deal of speaking about the future in the Bible, and almost never are those words actually spoken. Neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor the other apostles always stated this condition out loud when explaining their plans or expressing their intentions. 
They had no doubt that God was overseeing those plans and that when those plans came to nothing, that was God's will. But they didn't always say the words that expressed that conviction, the words that James uses here. For example, Paul gives the Romans an elaborate description of the itinerary he intended to follow once he left Ephesus where he was when he wrote his great letter to the Romans. He was going to Jerusalem to deliver the monetary gift that had been collected from his Gentile congregations through the course of his third missionary journey. Then he was intending to leave for Spain, but pass through Rome en route, giving him a chance to meet those saints there in person. As it happened, as you know, when he reached Jerusalem, he was arrested and he spent the next two years in jail in Caesarea. He appealed his case to Caesar and was duly sent to Rome under arrest. So he actually did make it to the capital. He did meet the saints there and it appears he did go on to Spain from Rome after he was released, but nothing happened as Paul had imagined it would when he first wrote of his plan to the Romans. Still, though nobody knew better than the Apostle Paul that his life with all of its twists and turns was entirely in God's hands and that in all things God was working his purposes out in Paul's life, not necessarily Paul's purposes, Paul didn't always say that every time he talked about his intentions or the plans he was making. Of course, it's a fact of human life that any wise man will reckon with, that life is fragile, utterly unpredictable. That's one reason why the insurance industry, whether life or property, never fails to sell its products. We all know that houses can burn down, that car accidents occur with regularity, that sickness or sudden death can change a person's or a family's fortunes overnight. Wisdom being wisdom, what James says here can be found in the wisdom literature of the world, at least in a general way, if not in a specifically Christian form. And human history and church history is furnished with literally unending examples of how very differently events unfold than a person supposed they would beforehand. Alexander the Great died at 33 years of age, having conquered most of the then known world. But his exalted plans for empire came to nothing. The lands he had just conquered were divided up among his lieutenants without his knowledge or his influence. One wonders, of course, if Alexander would have set out to conquer Persia and beyond if he had known that he would so soon contract an illness and die, that he would not live to see his great accomplishments take hold. But he didn't plan on dying, and he altered history as a result. Of course, had he remained in Macedonia, he might well have lived a long life and died an old man full of years. But how was he to know? The Oracle of Delphi didn't bother to tell him when he consulted her before leaving for the East. But we're less interested in 
unbelievers than we are in believers. Robert Murray McShane is one of the most celebrated names in Presbyterian church history, the saintly Scottish pastor, more famous for his personal holiness than his accomplishments, but his accomplishments were impressive enough. He led his congregation through a time of great revival in the late 1830s and early 1840s. His writings, including his letters, his poetry, especially his published sermons, have been read avidly in the years ever since. He devised a Bible reading plan that has been widely used since his death. I use it myself every year. He was also a delegate of the Church of Scotland, sent with a few others, including his friend Andrew Bonar, to investigate the possibility of missionary work in the Holy Land. And the written report of that deputation became one of the classics of English-speaking missionary history. He was also part of that group of faithful ministers who prepared to lead their congregations out of the Church of Scotland in 1843 in what came to be called the Disruption to create the Free Church, a faithful Presbyterian church in Scotland unencumbered by connections to the state. Andrew Bonar, McShane's close friend and colleague on that trip to the Middle East, wrote a memoir of McShane after his death, which itself became a spiritual classic, remaining in print virtually without interruption since it was first published. But McShane was 29 years of age when he died, the victim of typhoid, which was making its way through the town of Dundee. He'd been a minister for only seven years, but he crammed many lifetimes into those seven years, in large part because he was so well aware of the fact that his life was, as James says it is here, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It is said that McShane, McShane, though still in his 20s, in order to enforce a consciousness of the fragility of life and the shortness of it, painted a setting sun on his watch so that whenever he checked the time, he would be reminded of the brevity of human life and of its tenuous character. Of course, he was a frail man, often sick. He lived in a time when a great many more people died young. So perhaps it was easier for McShane to hold in his mind that sense of the fragility and brevity of life than it would be for us. Yet nevertheless, his life certainly teaches us that if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Or think of Blaise Pascal, the French polymath, mathematician, physicist, scientist, inventor, man of letters, Christian philosopher, who died when he was only 39 years of age. For some years, he had been putting down various ideas that occurred to him on scraps of paper, thoughts that he thought might contribute to what he intended to be a magnum opus, a major work of Christian apologetics, defense of the faith. He, defy, he died before he could work them into a coherent argument, and they have ever since been published simply as the famous Pensees of Blaise Pascal, the thoughts of Blaise Pascal. You can't help but wonder how much more that great mind and great heart might have accomplished if he'd lived another 20 or 30 or 40 years. 
But it was not to be. If God lives or God wills, we will live and do this or that. And of course, reminders of the fragility of life come thick and fast in far more personal ways in the experience of people we actually know and sometimes people we love. My brother-in-law died at 42. My sister at 49. I still vividly remember one day in the office receiving that first telephone call. Something had been found in her physical exam and she was being sent to a hospital for more tests to determine whether this was something that she should be concerned about and she wanted me to pray with her and for her. It turned out to be ovarian cancer and she was dead two years later. Of course, I know, everybody knows, that people often die sooner than is expected. But no one in our family was reckoning with that possibility. The other day I happened to dip in again to Stephen Ambrose's book, Citizen Soldiers, his account of the U.S. Army and Europe during the Second World War. In that book, if you've ever read it, he is severely critical of the U.S. Army's method of feeding replacements into units in the field. What many now regard to have been a particularly cruel and inefficient method of replacing killed and injured soldiers. Young men, boys really, uh, were shipped to Europe often just a few months after they had graduated from high school. They were made to wait in replacement depots amongst large crowds of soldiers whom they did not know. And then they were plucked one by one and sent to units who were in the thick of the action, their numbers having been decimated by losses in combat. Young kids, poorly trained, who didn't know what to do, were intimidated by their situation. They knew nobody in their unit. They were often shunned by their new comrades because rookies made mistakes that could get them killed too. They were afraid. They were often in tears, utterly lost and confused, shivering in a foxhole with six inches of water in the bottom, with artillery rounds and small arms fire whizzing around and over their heads. Ambrose relates the sad case of one young fellow sent as a replacement to the front line, landed in his unit in the midst of a firefight, and was killed in the first minute of his service as a soldier. The soldiers he was with, not a one of whom did he know the name of, were ordered forward, and he was shot dead before they had taken three steps. Ten seconds. No one thinks that's going to happen, even in wartime. Surely there will be some time, some camaraderie, some experience as a soldier. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is not against planning. Jesus was a planner. Paul was certainly a planner. They had a strategy to complete their calling, and they suited their tactics to that strategy very wisely. They would have agreed with the famous adage, he who fails to plan, plans to fail. 
But James wants us to plan fully aware of our actual situation in life. These merchants knew what they intended to do, how long they were going to do it. They visualized the reward that would be theirs at the end of the day. In fact, they could have no idea if any of this was going to turn out as they hoped. They might even do what they planned to do for as long as they planned to do it, where they planned to do it, and have nothing to show for it at the end of the year. Or they might actually never be able even to start out on their trip, their trading or merchant trip. They planned for a year's work, but they couldn't be sure there would be a tomorrow, much less another year. So they didn't make their plans fully aware of the fact of how fragile human life is, how unpredictable it is, because it is utterly dependent on the good pleasure, the provision, and the plan, and the purpose of God. The unbeliever, of course, rarely seriously considers either the fragility or the brevity of life. He or she is, we read in Hebrews, in bondage to the fear of death all his or her life long. And ignoring reality is a typical human strategy for coping with fear. More than half of adult Americans ages 55 to 64 do not have a will. Sometimes they fill the void with bluster. W.E. Henley, the Victorian poet, wrote the famous poem Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horrors of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. People have actually found those words inspiring, including Nelson Mandela, as you know, if you saw the movie that bore the title of the poem, Invictus, made a few years ago. But of course, those words are nonsense. Souls are conquered all the time by all manner of things and are, of course, inevitably conquered by death. And no human being is the master of his own fate, however much his bluster may lead him to suppose he is. Many of you saw the movie Unbroken, the account of Louis Zamperini's youth and wartime experiences. But the movie, I felt, having watched it to its end, was deeply dishonest. Obviously dishonest. For anyone who knew Zamperini's story, you felt like standing up in the theater and said the movie had the wrong title. It should have been broken. Zamperini didn't come home unbroken. He didn't remain unbowed by the bludgeonings of chance. He came home a very disturbed 
and broken man. He soon, soon proved he was a ruined man, an alcoholic, enthralled to the nightmares that interrupted his sleep night after night, vivid reenactments of his brutal treatment as a Japanese prisoner of war. His marriage was soon on the rocks. He was finding it difficult to make a living. He was angry at everybody all the time, and he was sometimes suicidal. Unbroken? Fooey. Louis Zamperini was rescued from the devastation of his life. He was made happy and useful again, a faithful husband and father. Not because he was the master of his fate, but because he had been rescued by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. In fact, W.E. Henley makes an interesting case. Invictus is one of what are called Henley's hospital poems. He had a number of early battles as a child and a youth with tuberculosis, and he had a leg amputated when he was 13 years of age. In fact, years later, Robert Louis Stevenson modeled his character, Long John Silver, in Treasure Island after his friend W.E. Henley. By the way, it was Henley's daughter who gave J.M. Barry, another family friend, the name Wendy for a principal character in Barry's Peter Pan. But his daughter didn't survive to read Barry's book, dying at five years of age. How, we may ask, was Henley the master of his fate if he couldn't prevent the death of his beloved daughter? And then Henley himself died quite young at 53 from the tuberculosis that had bedeviled his life from an early age. Making the story more interesting still, Henley was the editor of a magazine entitled The National Observer. In the pages of that magazine during Henley's editorship in 1894 is found a two-page review of Alexander White's book of sermons entitled Samuel Rutherford and Some of His Correspondence. There is if you know Alexander White or if you have read the book, there is a great deal in that splendid book about sin and about death and about the dependence of men on the grace of God, themes that were foremost in the preaching of the great Edinburgh preacher. In one sermon, White speaks at length about the importance with, of, of reckoning with the fact that you're going to die and die sooner than you probably think. And about the importance, therefore, of premeditating, or what White calls forefancying, your death. Seeing yourself dying. Seeing yourself being buried. Under the heading, The Bravest Leader of Old-Fashioned People, the writer of the review took two pages to pour scorn on White's book, and what he, what he called its morbid coquetting with death. We can't know if Henley was himself the author of the review, but there's no doubt he agreed with its sentiment. The review concluded this way. No healthy man believes that he's going to die. When the inevitable sword falls upon him, he bows his head with the best grace he can muster and says nothing about it. Well, all right, but then let's have no more of this nonsense about your being the master 
of your fate and the captain of your soul. The fact is, no one would recite Invictus if it ended with the words, no healthy man believes he's going to die. That doesn't sound like an unconquered soul. That sounds like a man who's unwilling to face facts. It sounds less heroic than it sounds idiotic. James' point, a point often made in the Bible, is that to live our lives rightly, we have to live them theologically, which is to say we need to understand our place in the great scheme of things. We're not in control of anything. Not really. We're creatures. God gave us our lives. And we are small creatures over whose lives God exercises an absolute control. If we imagine that we are somehow really the masters of our fate, we have been duped because even a wise unbeliever knows that so much of what determines what's going to come in our lives is invisible to us and unknown to us. And Christians, of course, know that that is supremely true because the one who determines everything about our lives is invisible to us and we have no idea what his plans for us may be. That would be an unsettling, even a horrifying thought, which is why people so rarely admit it, even to themselves, no matter how obvious it is. If it were not for the fact that a Christian knows the sovereign God who has ordered his days, every one of them, before there was one. He knows of his great love. He knows his wonderful goodness. He knows his faithfulness to his promises and his devotion to his people, a devotion that has been demonstrated beyond question in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he knows that God will finally do what is best for him, for his loved ones, for the world. We can see so little God sees everything, past, present, and future. We control so little, while God controls everything, absolutely, including and especially those things we are tempted to think we control ourselves. It's this state of mind that James is after. Plan as you will and as you must, but never forget that all of your plans are tentative, They must be in the nature of the case because you neither know nor control the future. It lies in God's hands, not in yours. If we remember this, it will keep us humble, it will keep us faithful in prayer, and it will enable us to relax and enjoy the ride. So all of you adults, stop and think for a moment now. How little, how little did you imagine when you were young, that you would be what you are today and where you are today. How little did you anticipate either the sorrows or the joys? And as a Christian, how certain are you now that God had all of this in mind before you were born? All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I am at this point in my life more certain of that fact than virtually any other, cert- any other fact in the world. So trust the Lord. Do what your hands find to do. And do it with all your might. Matters will turn out differently than you imagine in many cases. But as Samuel Rutherford famously put it, duties are ours, events are the Lord's.
Many years ago, when our Wednesday night prayer meeting was held in the old youth room in the basement of the old office wing of the church, we had several older women who were wonderfully faithful at midweek prayer. They were there every Wednesday night and faithful prayers. In those days, as today, we always concluded our prayer meeting with a hymn. She was there, an older woman, but still, so far as any of us knew, in very good health. We certainly expected that she would be there the following Wednesday night, as she had been every Wednesday night for years before. That night, the closing hymn was the 19th century Anglican Bishop Edward Bickersteth's Peace, Perfect Peace. Peace, perfect peace. Our future, all unknown. Jesus we know, and he is on the throne. Peace, perfect peace. Death, shadowing us and ours. Jesus has vanquished death and all its powers. Helen Payne was at the breakfast table two days later and fell over dead. We do not know. We cannot know. But we know this. We are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Only if the Lord wills will we live and do this or that. No boasting for us then. No acting as if we actually controlled the future or could guarantee the future. Always in mind and heart, at least sometimes on our lips. Lord willing, Deo Valente. And in that way, we keep ourselves busy doing the things we ought to be doing. For we do not know how much longer we'll be able to do them. And in that way, we always keep Him in our view as we make our plans for tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. <laughs>